This season of Invisible Capital is presented by Sapphire Ventures, a leading global B2B software-focused venture capital firm partnering with visionary teams building companies of consequence. As enterprise software specialists, Sapphire knows the challenges that high-growth B2B companies face when scaling from expansion stage to IPO. Sapphire partner and revenue excellence leader Curran Singh specializes in helping companies architect an efficient revenue engine that unlocks their ability to scale effectively. Stay tuned after today's episode to listen to the Sapphire series Game Changers, a show where Curran dives deep with the best revenue leaders in the industry on how they've transformed their company's growth trajectories. Head to sapphireventures.com to learn more about Sapphire's team of investors, portfolio growth advisors, and investment strategies, plus best practices and resources available from B2B industry experts. For some reason, Downround has become this uh, horrific thing. Oh my God, if we have to take a financing at a lower price than the previous financing, then that's just awful. If you think about a parallel universe, which is the public markets, on a daily basis, you know, stocks stocks go up and down. And in financings for public companies at different points in time, they might raise a financing when the stock price is at X. And then several years later, they might do another financing when the stock price is at, you know, 0.5X or 0.75X for whatever reason. So I think in general for private companies, minimizing the amount of structure you have in a financing is better. Hello, and welcome to season six of Invisible Capital, a podcast on the private markets. I'm Alexander Davis, Editor-in-Chief of Pitchbook News. This season, we're focusing on all things VC. We're kicking off season six with Brad Feld, partner and co-founder of Foundry, about how venture investors behave in a downturn, term sheets, and much, much more in a fascinating conversation led by PitchBook senior editor, James Thorne. But first, I'm happy to welcome PitchBook senior analyst, Kyle Stanford, back to the show to talk about the latest PitchBook NVCA Venture Monitor Report. Kyle, welcome. Thanks, Alec. Happy to be here. So let's talk about the topic that has generated a lot of debate recently, and that's dry powder. Maybe first, just sum up what the debate was about. Sure. First off, our dry powder figure is a calculation that we use looking at historical deployment rates alongside the amount of capital that is closed from a a given quarter to quarter that represents the amount of capital we estimate to be committed to VC funds and not yet deployed. So right now that, uh, Amount sits at 290.1 billion, which is incredibly high. Um, something around, you know, more than double what, what, what we were calculating at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so it has risen in very short order. Uh, the debate has been around whether that 290.1 billion is the actual amount or if it is an overestimate, um, or kind of somewhere in between. Okay. And as far as like why it matters, what that figure is, it seems to me that one of the one of the really interesting things that has driven some of the debate is what to read into 
the the existence of this this large figure and if it got much larger what that says about the future of um, the outlook for startups in the VC ecosystem getting more capital uh their their access to capital and I think if I'm oversimplifying it stop me but uh the the notion is that with that ever-growing pile of dry powder un untapped capital that it's an indication that there's there's plentiful abundant capital and even in a down market the the expectation is that that capital will be put to work and that all those startups out there will continue to get access to the capital they need even as things cool off in the venture market which as we know actually has been happening there there is a slowdown in the in the deal making sure i mean that is you know a relatively simple definition of what dry powder is but i think it's also a very simple data point and there's a lot more context that needs to be put around this dry powder figure to really you know suss out what it actually means to the industry i think when we look at 2021 especially you know dry powder wasn't the only capital that was coming into the venture market there was a lot of capital from hedge funds and mutual funds and private equity funds that isn't calculated into that dry powder figure. And that was really boosting up the amount of deal activity uh, from a deal value standpoint, at least, um, that was making into the venture market. So now as we sit here looking at a market with 1,200 unicorns globally and a huge number of highly valued startups at the late stage, I think we need to make sure that we take a step back and, and understand that the dry powder figure, even as high as it is, is typically not set up to uh, continue to support such a high number of large companies, right? These, these VC firms that are calculating into the dry powder figure are of all sizes, right? There's $2 million funds and there's $50 million funds and 250 and a billion dollar funds. Um, and so not all of those are going to be targeting every part of the market. Um, and so the dry powder figure does come with a lot of context as well. Yeah. And the traditional core of the VC market is really centered more on early stage classic venture rather than the, the larger, more established growth stage. And can you talk a little bit about how um, the, the the capital deployment actually breaks down along uh, those kinds of stages? Yeah, for sure. All right. If we wanted to talk about, you know, a core VC, it's going to center on that seed through probably series C, right? And that's where many of these funds are able to deploy capital or at least follow on toward. Um, you know, if we look at the capital deployment across the industry, there's obviously a lot more going to the late stage, but um, you know, much of that capital again is coming from non VC sources, right? At seed and early and series A and series B, you know, many of these deals are, you know, led and fully funded by your VC firms. Um, once you start getting larger, especially when we talk about, uh, the huge number of mega deals that have been completed over the past few years, those deals are going to need outside or non VC capital. So a stat that I keep pointing to is that um, in 2021, there was $200 billion invested in mega deals. And there was somewhere around 850, and I think it was 6% or so of the completed deals. 
in a record year of VC fundraising that year, 146 billion was closed by VC funds. So even if they took all of that record amount of capital and put it towards mega deals in 2021, there would still be this huge gap in funding that needs to be filled by non-traditional or, or non-VC investors. Yeah, and you're That's talking there about corporates, uh, private equity firms, sure. uh, these these types that are outside the the, the mainstream of the classic venture uh, investor. Yeah. Yeah. And those, the crossover investors, I think, especially have been major players in the this late stage or growth stage of VC of the past few years. Yeah. Uh, hedge funds and mutual funds have been you know, jumping into the private markets to make sure that they are capturing the growth that is occurring before the IPO happens. Um, obviously, these institutions are traditionally public market investors and have a much larger portfolio in the public markets than they do in VC. And so like, the, like the, the Fidelities and the Vanguards of the world. Fidelities and T. Rowe. Uh, I mean, KOTU obviously has some some VC funds, but are a traditionally you know, public market investor. And these institutions are much larger than a VC fund, right? If we're talking about the median VC fund in 2021 being $50 million in size, uh, you know, yeah. T. Rowe no, com- Price, no comparison. <laughs> I know, T. Rowe has what, two point something trillion dollars in, in under management. Um, and so they're able to put, you know, huge amounts of capital to work. And they also need to put huge amounts of capital to work. Making a $2 million VC deal is not going to produce the material returns, even if it mm-hmm. becomes a unicorn, where if they can put $100 million or $200 million to work in a single deal, doubling that actually has some return value for their large, large fund. Okay, Kyle. So talk then about how the current levels of dry powder has been affecting deal making pace. We've seen a pretty big slowdown, especially in a deal value perspective at the late stage. We've seen a lot of those non-traditional, you know, crossover investors pull back, um, which is not fun funneling the amount of capital to the market. And then we also see at the other side of the spectrum, the seed in early stage stayed really strong, both in terms of deal count and deal value. Right. There's a much smaller market there that all this dry powder that is actually available, including the high number of investors. We've had 2,600 funds close in the U.S. since the beginning of 2020. So there's a huge number of investors that are looking to make deals. So if some pull back, there are, are now there's less competition, but there are still investors there to make deals. That area of the market is relatively strong and the late stage is falling. And that's kind of where the narrative has gone as far as VC crumbling because the late stage has, right? If you're talking about, uh, especially the growth stage, the, you know, unicorn creation is is very low because none of the other unicorns can exit. And so without those non-traditionals funneling the capital to the market, that capital availability is much lower. We're calculating there's like $6 available for every dollar being looked for in the late stage, uh, which is 40% lower than it was in 2021. And Kyle, I know that the team recently published new research on quantitative perspectives. Can you maybe hit a couple of top insights that came out of that? I think there's just interesting charts that they're putting out uh, and interesting ways to look at our data, um, especially when we talk about deal activity. There's a couple of charts that show, you know, how the deal activity, both value and count that we're collecting now are still higher than the, the long term growth trend that we've seen. So I've been using that as been like, hey, if there's an area where we can expect deal count and deal value to fall back to before, you know, barring any major catastrophe in the economy, you know, I think we're looking toward that long-term growth trend to be like, all right, we can expect deal activity to come down here, 
kind of reset the market. Uh, deal value fall down, reset the market. This is a good area that we can expect uh, that to fall to because in 2019 and 2020, those were at the time very strong years um, and growing, seeing the VC market grow. And so if we can expect the market to go back towards there, um, that long-term trend is, is an interesting spot to look to. To download our latest Venture Monitor report and our Quantitative Perspectives report, visit pitchbook.com slash podcast. After the break, we'll hear James's conversation with Brad Feld of Foundry. Stay tuned after today's interview to hear the latest episode of Sapphire Ventures series, Game Changers, where Sapphire partner and head of revenue excellence, Curran Singh, connects with the best revenue leaders in the industry about how they've transformed their company's growth trajectories. Give some counsel to our audience. Assume that there's uh, revenue leaders listening in and saying, hey, I want to go down this journey. How did you pitch this to your leadership? In Forder and in past lives, what would you suggest they do as part of their pitch as well to cement this concept in their leadership's mind and get buy-in? Admittedly, I think this is the most important sale a revenue leader will make is the internal sale. I think there is a propensity for founders and early stage companies to underinvest and go to market thinking that, hey, if my product is super legit, it'll sell itself or the phone will just ring because this stuff is so amazing and we'll just hire some rainmaker, natural all-star salespeople, and they can will their way to victory. It's a dangerous path to go down. Are you, uh, are you joining us from uh, your house in Colorado? Yep. I am sitting in my backyard in Aspen today. Oh, nice. We spend most of our time, we split our time between Aspen and Boulder. I grew up in, in Vail, so a bit of a rivalry there, Aspen and Vail. Yeah, you know, well, well Vail kind of sucks. You know, it's like uh, Dallas and Houston. I grew up in Dallas. Anytime somebody mentioned Houston, we just rolled our eyes. So I feel like I have to do the same thing about Vail. Yeah, yeah, you got to. Got I said it totally tongue-in-cheek. Vail is pretty epically beautiful, too. Well, before we get started, do you want to just uh, do a short little like, bio intro for yourself? Sure. My name is Brad Feld. Uh, I'm a partner at Foundry. We're a venture capital firm that invests in early stage tech companies all around the U.S. Uh, we also invest about 25% of our capital in early stage venture funds. We've got about almost 50 of them that we consider partner funds that we're close partners with and investors in. I also co-founded Techstars and I'm on the board there, written a number of books. Uh, I run long distance and love to get lost in the mountains for two or three hours at a time. And I've been married for 29 years and together for 32 years with a magnificent woman named Amy Batchelor. Wonderful. Uh, well, Brad, so happy you're here to join us on the podcast today. You you literally wrote the book on uh, Venture Deals. It's called Venture Deals, co-authored with Jason Mendelson. Uh, and it's kind of become required reading uh, for anyone raising VC money for the first time. In fact, it's been on my desk for the last month or so. I'm trying to get a better handle on all the the ter term sheet terms, and I'm definitely a work in progress. But the the book has been a huge help. You know, I think it's one of those things where I started covering venture full time three years ago, and 
you know, ever since it's kind of been boom times. No one's really talking about term sheet provisions uh, anymore. And then all of a sudden this year I'm reading pro rata and he's, he's dropping all sorts of phrases. I'm, I'm like, I got to go look that one up in the glossary. So, you know, you, you've been a, 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 an entrepreneur and an investor for several decades. You, you were an investor uh, in the dot-com boom and bust cycle. I, I'm just wondering like how you feel this moment in time kind of compares to previous stock market downturns that you've seen. Yeah, I think this is this moment in time is more similar to the early 2000s and you know the dot com or internet bubble and and the subsequent collapse than it is to the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, 2009. I think two of the main differences are in the financial crisis there were a whole bunch of structural things across the entire economy that then ended up happening, but in a way that in some ways was a parallel universe to entrepreneurship. And my own experience, you know, we raised our first foundry fund in 2007. So we invested in 2007, eight and nine, and then raised our second fund in 2010. That fund ended up being extraordinarily successful. And it was really very independent of the timeframe that we were investing because the entrepreneurial activity, especially at the early stages, but also throughout the whole life cycle was incredibly vibrant. It's useful to note 2007 was a really seminal moment in time for the tech industry because it was when the iPhone came out. And I'd also say it was the moment in time where I think AWS started to really become a thing that technology companies were relying on rather than having to procure infrastructure and procure servers and be in co-location spaces. So there were some, some foundational shifts there. In the 2001 timeframe, what happened was there were a bunch of premises around the internet and how the internet would affect business and technology and society as a whole. And many of those premises have gone on to be true 20 years later or even 10 years later. But at the time, the technology and the technology infrastructure wasn't there to support the use cases, to support the scale. And as the bubble inflated and as more and more nonsense was created around financial metrics and the way that people rationalized valuation, the way the public market rationalized valuation, the demand supply equation capital, the unwinding of that when something changed in 2001, 2002 was very similar to the unwinding of that that we've been going through for the last almost nine months now, if you really go back to Thanksgiving, sort of my view is middle of November was the very peak in the beginning that, of this happening. That, that's piece one. Piece two is there was a, a lot of theses in 2001 about the future of technology or in 2000 about the future of technology and what was going to happen and how it was going to be disruptive to wide swaths of the way things work. And I remember it was a time period where every major company started putting a little E in front of everything where the little E stood for e-commerce. So they put a dot-com at the end of everything. And again, that was kind of a, a moment of the signal of nearing the peak of that phenomena. So by the way, many of those things have turned out to be true. I think we're, we're going through a lot of that in certain categories right now, again. And uh, I would say crypto broadly writ would be a good example of that, where you know the experience of the last couple of months showed that, yeah, there might be this fundamental DeFi thing going on and distributed finance thing going on in crypto. But if you go back a couple of years, my understanding was crypto was supposed to be inflation proof. That was one of the strong arguments for it. That turned out to be totally not true. Second, everybody was talking about how it was truly decentralized. Well, if you look at what 
just played out with things like Luma and Celsius and Voyager and a few others. Those were sort of phenomena that had nothing to do with decentralized finance. Those were kind of traditional finance phenomena of fundamentally over-leveraged, phenomena, uh, over-leveraged investing. So you have these things that were happening where the technology was disconnected from what people were raising money for and what people were promoting and selling. And it accelerated very, very quickly. And then once it sort of hit some peak, it decelerated uh, or deflated even more quickly. And that's what that time frame felt like in 2000, 2001. And that's what it felt like again right now. By the way, if you're in the banking industry, broadly right globally in 2007, 8, 9, it felt like that in the banking industry. But it didn't necessarily feel like that in all industries in all places. That, that, that's how I compare the two. I think, I think one of the things that has gone along with this kind of bubbly atmosphere is just like this, this trend towards founder-friendly provisions, founder-friendly deals. You know, we, we see that most obviously in, in rising valuations. You know, at Pitchwick, we try to measure this. We have uh, our deal-making indicator. Uh, we, we look at things like uh, cumulative di- dividends, voting rights, liquidation preferences, uh, and try to package it all into a nice line graph that shows, you know, is it becoming more founder-friendly or less founder-friendly? You know, I, I'm curious from your perspective over the last you know, well, prior to 2022, but over the last several years, what kind of drove the market towards being so founder friendly? Well, there was a a lot of discussion and language and that then turned into a philosophy and ultimately possibly even religion around this that came out of the internet bubble, you know, starting with investing activity around when Web 2.0 got coined 2000 and, you know, four, five, six, that time frame. And in that there were prior to that, I should say, there was a huge opacity, the information opacity or information asymmetry between investors and entrepreneurs. And some of it had to do with the way deals got done. Some of it had to do with the supply demand between capital and ideas. And a lot of it had to do with the ability to communicate different kinds of information about what was going on. And I'll just use the Venture Deals book as an example. We came out with that book in 2010, but in 2004, I wrote about 30 blog posts with Jason on Feld.com that deconstructed a term sheet. So you're, you know, you're going back in 2004, and what we essentially did with that, that blog series was in English, if somebody you know, read the blogs, all of a sudden you could understand what the terms were that you were negotiating in a financing. Prior to that, the vast majority of entrepreneurs uh, relied on, in some cases, their lawyer, but in a lot of cases, sort of hearsay to understand what was important. And there was this opacity that got in the way. One of the challenges with that in the 2001 to 2004 timeframe was that many of the financings that were done were very founder hostile because they were being done into a down market, into a market that had just had massive excesses in terms of inflated valuations and huge amounts of capital thrown at things. And now all of a sudden, the balance of power shifted dramatically in terms of new capital because new capital was scarce and your company could either go out of business, it could survive without additional capital, or if it needed new capital, it didn't have a lot, didn't have the same kind of choice it had prior. There was a backlash uh, uh, against that kind of in the 2005, 6, 7 timeframe. And there was a new generation of investor and a phenomena that you know was emergent with things like Techstars and YC, where there were many more people who at the very early stages, pre-seed wasn't even a phrase and it was just seed, were positioning themselves as we're the early investors and we're going to be 
founder friendly. You know, even at the angel investment level, there historically have been two types of angels, and I like to call them angels and devils. Like an angel investor is supposed to be helpful to your company at the very early stages. They provide capital, but they really help you succeed. But there's always been a category of those angel investors who really are devils. They, they care too much about control. They're worried about their downside. They take too long to make decisions. So there was this backlash sort of as you had this emergence of the next wave of early stage investors. And, you know, they were uh, many of them were firms like uh, First Round, you know, who were very vocal about being sort of soft touch, lightweight, you know, your first check. I think at Foundry, we had that kind of a culture where we tried to be very straightforward with terms. And then, you know, the organizations that and the networks that got created, especially the communication between early stage entrepreneurs, helped amplify the understanding of, hey, at the very early stages, like, yeah, you could lose all your money. So why are we spending all this time negotiating all this downside protection and all this control provisions when really what we need is some money to get started to see if the thing that we have even has any merit or not? I would say that shift is uh, something that evolved to a point where many things were not being paid attention to or were just being sort of hand-waved away for whatever reason. A lot of them had to do around in mid and later stage financings all around control and who gets to do what kinds of things and what kind of decisions, whether it's the founders, the investors, management, these sorts of things don't matter if everything's working, but the second things don't work, you have to start to at least deal with and rationalize these things in some way, shape or form. At the extreme of the last you know, 12, 18 months, there were numerous investors who were very proud about how they made investments in you know, uh, one phone call in 15 minutes and no diligence and sort of uh, absolutely no governance rights of any sort. And I would say if you also looked at some of the things that are have gone wrong in profound ways in crypto, it, it has some of the same activity, same dynamics, where there's people who are moving really significant sums of money around to whether they're entrepreneurs or other parties, where there's just no, no sort of semblance of, of control or understanding. Interestingly, it doesn't take very many of those failures for a venture fund to change their behavior or for an investor to change their behavior. And many of those things have just happened. So that's part of why you see now the other version of the backlash, which doesn't necessarily mean that suddenly the investor community is less founder friendly. It just means that especially at mid and later stage financings, there's going to start to be a lot more focus on downside protection, on making sure that what you're investing in and what you're getting is actually what you think you're investing in and what you're getting. That there's well, uh, well-defined ways to engage with each other on the investor founder boundary. So I think these cycle in and out from my frame of reference and from Foundry's frame of reference, we've always tried to keep things very straightforward and recognize that you have, you know, kind of three scenarios. You have the significant positive scenario where everything's working and many, you know, of, of the things around downside protection uh, and control and rights don't matter. You have sort of a, a sideways case where things are working okay, but you decide you want to keep going, but you've got to make some adjustments and you've got to deal with that. It's difficult to get financing into those companies. And then you have the downside case where nothing's worth anything. One thing for entrepreneurs in this moment to watch out for is the more complexity new money brings with it, especially around the downside case versus just 
dealing with, with the reality and recapitalizing the company appropriately. In my own experience, the less your success, the less the lower your probability for success. So the more structure, the more complexity, uh, the more people sort of punt on things like what's the right valuation and who should own what portion of the company and what should be the roles and responsibilities of people going forward when you're in one of those downside cases, but you've decided to keep funding the company. The less people deal with things, the more complex stuff is, the lower your probability for success. You know, I think I think along those lines, one of the things I've I've heard you say before is kind of talking about this idea of of taking a down route and how sometimes that's that's an okay thing to do. It's sometimes that's the right thing to do versus the route you're talking about, which is you know put a ton of structure on the deal, um, have a ton of downside protection because oftentimes those terms kind of follow the company then for the rest of its life and, and make it very difficult for follow on investments. Uh, can you talk about like you know what under what circumstances it's it's an appropriate moment for a company to just take take a down round and and move on in a clean way. Yeah, for some reason, down round has become this uh, horrific thing. Oh my god! If we have to take a financing at a lower price than the previous financing, then that's just awful. If you think about a parallel universe, which is the public markets, on a daily basis, you know stocks stocks go up and down. And in financings for public companies at different points in time, they might raise a financing when the stock price is at X. And then several years later, they might do another financing when the stock price is at, you know, 0.5X or 0.75X for whatever reason. So I think in general for private companies, minimizing the amount of structure you have in a financing is better. A lot of times structure is just an economic term. And what it's doing is it's creating a misallocation or misalignment of incentives between the investors. We haven't had to talk about it a lot in the last five years or so, but a lot of structure introduces what's called a flat spot in the return curve, where instead of the return curve having alignment with everybody that's an investor, so the more the value goes up, the more everybody makes, there's these stretches of time where an investor might be completely indifferent to whether the company sells for $50 million or $150 million, they make the same amount of money. So on that kind of a flat curve, that investor, if, they, if you get an offer for $50 million, they're just as motivated to sell as if you got an invest, uh, a price of $150 million. The more of those things you have in your capital structure, the more of those kinds of flat spots or situations where different investors really have fundamentally different motivations, the worse your life gets. And your point's right on the money, which is that it compounds because it's very hard once you've done a financing that has some structure to get rid of that structure in the future, certainly for that financing. But everybody new comes in and says, oh, well, they got that. So I should get that too. So unless your business turns around in a profound way, you kind of have to live with this stuff. That complexity creates misalignment. So from my standpoint, it's like, all right, if you're willing to take money at you know, price X with all this complexity, what's the price that you're willing to take X at without the complexity? And the answer is going to be less, right? So maybe you're willing to take money at 0.75X without the complexity, or maybe it's 0.6X without the complexity. And then you just run the math. Like in the downside case, it probably doesn't matter because the new money is going to take all the company. In the sideways case, it's probably not going to matter that much because nobody's going to make a lot of money. In the upside case, 
the bigger the upside case, in some ways, the less it's going to matter that you got rid of all this craziness. Yeah, your ownership might be less, but now you're not fighting over all of the challenges in the other cases. And you're much more aligned with where you're trying to go on the outcome. Right. I, I think one of the reasons people might lean on on structure is we're just at a point where it's really hard to price things. Um, it's really not clear what what fair prices look like. I'm just curious if you have any advice for how, you know, founders and investors can like come to the table and and kind of negotiate when there is that amount of uncertainty over price, which obviously there's always that uncertainty in, in venture markets. But I think like, especially at a time when the, the markets are doing what they're doing. I don't agree with the premise that it's hard to price companies. I think that there are relatively easy ways to understand what a fair value for a business is at any given point in time. In a world where the market is determining the price, if you have one investor who's willing to set price, then you have very little leverage. If you have a lot of investors who are willing to set price, then you have a lot of leverage. The way I would say your statement in a way that I would agree with is that the leverage has shifted away from the entrepreneurs in many cases, because there are fewer investors who are willing to pay high prices for their business relative to the performance of the business. If you went back any even five years and said, hey, would you pay a premium multiple on somebody's revenue three years from now as your current valuation? the investor would look at you like you were from another planet. Whereas in the second half of 2021, regularly companies were being priced at a multiple off of 2024. And the multiple that they're getting priced off of 2024 was a premium multiple to the market. And this this dynamic of the leverage of whether you're the investor or the entrepreneur, sure, if the supply demand on one side is imbalanced, then you're going to get a higher price or a lower price. I think the more interesting thing in this moment that entrepreneurs now have to live with is the quality of their existing investor base relative to new investors. If your existing investors are willing to put more money in your company at a valuation that you as the entrepreneur think is reasonable, you're in a pretty good position. If you're in exist or if you have three years of cash in the bank, you're in a pretty good position. If your investors are not willing to do that, especially if your investors are at the top of the cap table and they've written a significant check, you have a problem because any new investor is not going to want that valuation to hold unless your business is doing stupendously well and everybody's throwing money at you. So the dynamic of the quality of your investors, how much capital they actually have combined with how well your business is performing is now going to determine what that valuation is versus demand from a bunch of investors who are just trying to get capital into companies independent of price because their view is, I want the option value on the future. The company is going to grow into the valuation. As long as they perform, everything's going to be fine. If they don't perform, I still have a senior position in what looks like you know, a company that's going to have some value, so I'll get my money back. So I, I think that really hits on one of the themes of, of venture deals, which is that it's real. This is really about relationships. When you take money from someone, you're essentially committing to you know what could be a ten year long relationship with them. Do you think that some entrepreneurs might regret the the, the sorts of investors that they struck deal with deals with over the last two years when they were really just kind of maybe going for the highest price, but not really thinking about what that investor was going to be like, how they might behave through ups and downs of the market over the, the you know the next five to ten years? Yeah, if one you know, believes that, you know, history is a guide, not 
not that it repeats itself, but it's a guy that you can learn from history. The the short answer is yes, absolutely. There will be a lot of that kind of disappointment. I think what will be most challenging to entrepreneurs are situations where their businesses are doing okay, or even their businesses are doing somewhere between okay and good, where the belief is, if you hang in there with me, oh, investors, we can get to a good place, but we need more money and we need more time. And suddenly they find that their existing investors have decided, you know what, we're done. They're, tri- you know, the existing investors have triaged their portfolios and they've said, we're not going to bother supporting these companies or their existing investors have, you know, their fund has run out of money and they can't put money into that company because they're not going to cross fund or whatever. And in those cases, the behavior of the investors is going to generally be very consistent with historical behavior, which is to say that venture, the individual venture funds are going to behave like they have in the past, which is interesting because there are many new venture funds. So that you don't have that history. At the early stages, you have a lot of venture funds who have been playing one of two games. One game is we write one check and then we're done. We'll help you really, really be successful, but we're only writing one check and then we're done. The other game is, hey, we want to buy our pro rata in every subsequent round. So they've been kind of constantly increasing the amount of ownership that they've been buying or uh, dollars that they've been buying to maintain their ownership, which for an early stage fund strategy in an, in an up case where everything's working is a great strategy, but in a downside case, it's a terrible strategy because you've got all this money that you could have invested in other companies that you've got now tied up in something that's not working. And then there's a bunch of venture funds that are multi-stage, right? So you have to understand what their strategies are. So I think the disappointment, the frustration will come from an entrepreneur when they don't actually understand how their investors are going to behave in the market that we're going to have for the foreseeable future. And as a result, haven't been proactive with those investors early before they reach the point where they run out of money to understand what the investors' proclivities are going to be. Interestingly, and I I think this is a positive in the industry in general, while the prognostication from lots of investors, I don't find terribly helpful, including myself. I try not to just prognosticate broadly about you should, you should have three years of cash in the bank. It gets a data point. It's an input. You have to understand it based on your specific situation as a company versus the endless prognostications. The positive part of that is I think there are many more investors who are trying to be very proactive with the companies they're invested in to help those companies understand what their behaviors are going to be. And in my own experience, while a lot of investors don't, you know, lay all their cards on the table, you know, 12 months before financing or 18 months before financing need, I'm seeing a lot more conversation in this moment where people are saying, here's how I'm worried it's going to play out. And if it plays out this way, we're kind of screwed because I can't help you. And uh, if it plays out this way, then I can help you. Or, you know what, as long as we get to this period of time, if, if things are not working by this period of time, it doesn't matter anyway, because we didn't get like the length of time is long enough into the future. If I simplified that, I'd say if it, for anybody that has to raise money between now and the end of 2022, if you don't know exactly what your existing investors are going to do and you're already in process with them on that, you're way behind the curve. If you need money before the end of 2023, if you haven't already come up with plan A, B, and C with your existing investors on what to do and modulate it based on what 
how your business is doing, you're way behind the curve. If you're in a position where you don't have to raise money till 2024, you're probably on track as long as you're adjusting things accordingly based on how your business is performing. So those first two categories, for better or for worse, well, we hear about a lot of the companies that have two or three or four years of cash because they raised a zillion dollars. I think on a percentage basis, there's a huge number of companies that are in category A or B, right? They need money now or they need money within the next year, year and a half. If you don't know exactly what your existing investors are going to do and how you're going to play things out and what your alternative choices are, get on that yesterday. Kind of sounds like, I mean, on the subject of investor behavior and, and investor psychology, you know, one of the things that that's really weird about this moment is, especially the, at the largest VC funds, you know, investors have raised a lot of money. They're they're sitting on tons and tons of commitments. They they have it available, but they're in spite of this, they're kind of they're slowing their role. They're they're kind of they're proceeding with caution. Can you talk about you know why that behavior has has shifted? You know, d- d- despite the fact that they they have these funds, they have this capital they can call down. Why investors ha- have decided like okay, we gotta we gotta we gotta proceed more cautiously now. Yeah, my my sense is it's not. There's no uniform distribution of it, and some of it is a function of pace of investment. So historically, a VC fund typically got invested in three to four years. I would say post the financial crisis, that became kind of a two and a half to three year cycle, and then that compressed again to sort of a two to three year cycle. A two-year cycle is pretty fast, even if you have a big team, in terms of time diversity of the fund. And then what happened in 2000, and I'm going to say 19, it feels like it happened around 2019, was the fund cycle shifted to a one-year cycle for many funds. It's very acute for us. We see it at Foundry because we've been on a three-year cycle since the beginning, right? 2007 fund, 2010 fund, 2013 fund. And in fact, when we raised a fund in 2018, we told our LPs we wouldn't raise another fund until 2022. And if you're still putting money out in 2021 from a fund from 2018, the IRR math is very different than if you're on a one-year fund cycle and every year you're putting new money out because all of your cost basis money is only one year old. Whereas you might be in year three of your fund and you're now just putting in your first check into some things. So so we were sort of very aware of it in the market, notwithstanding that and the idea that we had a bunch of investments, you know, about 50 funds. So we saw the cycle speed up with many of those funds coming back. You know, we'll be back in three years. Oops, we're back in two years. Oops, we're back in a year and a half. What that means is something that's not obvious yet to the market dynamic because of how the market settles. So for 2022, the vast majority of LP funding is done, right? And frankly, it was for many LPs, it was done in the first three months of the year. Many of those LPs are now having to think about what their actual venture allocation exposure is, including all those commitments that they made in the last year or two. But most of the funds that they committed to prior to 2019 are fully invested. So those firms are either back in market or raised a fund in 2021 or 2022. In 2023, it will be interesting to see how many existing funds have to that come back to market have to raise smaller amounts of money or have difficulty raising money, even if their performance has been good, because the LPs have much less money to put out. And the reason they have less money to put out is their public market holdings are lower. 
even though the private marks haven't hit, everybody on the LP side knows that the private markets lag the public markets. And so the private markets are going to have significant write downs over the next 12 months. That's, you know, unless something dramatic changes in the market, uh, that's going to happen. Many of these companies that are funded for two or three years are not going to grow into their valuations and are going to need to raise more money at a lower price. You're going to continue to have some very high profile flameouts, which we've already had a bunch of, um, you know, in, in the last nine months, but it, it'll continue as companies that were being held at some price just go to zero. And as that starts to play into the capital, I think the time frame for these funds in terms of deploying capital will stretch out again. So people will say, you know what, we've been deploying it in one year. Let's deploy it in two years again. Or let's deploy it in three years again. And even if they have more capital, the pace at which that capital gets deployed will go down. So that's that's a big one. And I there's a lot to unpack in that. And there's speculation on my part around that. I mean, the public markets could reverse, the venture markets could reverse, all this stuff could change. But if you assume sort of same steady state or same course for 24 months, 36 months, as you know, the world deals with what it's dealing with, that's going to be a factor. The other is just human behavior, right? I've got a shitload of portfolio companies because I've been investing at a tor torrid pace. And I've got all this money invested as an, a VC, all this money invested, and I've grown my team. And now... The public markets have gone down 50 to 75%. All the companies that we hold public, you know, that all the companies a venture firm holds as public companies are way down. So we still hold those, those equity. We haven't necessarily distributed or realized that, but we just took a big loss on the public side. And we are all of a sudden fearful about how easy or hard it will be to raise money for existing companies. So number one, I want to make sure I've got more of my own money available for companies that I want to keep funding. So my reserves just went up. Second, I got a bunch of work to do to figure out which companies I want to, you know, spend time on and which I don't. And the ones I want to spend time on need more of my time. So I have less time to run around looking at new stuff. And as a partnership, like every other partnership, the conversation then becomes, what's our focus? What's our pacing? What's our strategy? And again, human behavior just naturally slows way down because of the exogenous stimuli that just happened. That's independent of, I would say, the category of, pick your category, but growth stage investing, that while the dollars that's available may seem a lot, it's actually significantly less than it was 12 months ago. Because when those companies raised, those firms raised a bunch of money, they spent it really quickly, or they invested it really quickly. And they haven't necessarily been able to go out and re-raise that same amount of money. So those really big checks at those later stages that fund two or three years forward have slowed way down. And that has a ripple effect all the way back through the system. Maybe I'd, I'd add one more thing. I think we're two quarters away from having any clarity around the supply demand dynamics. I don't think we're going to really know what's going on until Q1 of 2023 when venture funds that need to raise the 23 fund are back in the market. And we really understand LP sentiment. So in addition to tracking money that goes into companies, in addition to tracking funds that are raised, tracking what LPs are putting out as new dollars and new commitments relative to their outstanding commitments, that's a, that's a really important part of the calculus of the momentum and speed of the market. Yeah, I imagine you know the question of of exits and 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 you know how much money is actually going to be returned over the next twelve years will play into that. Look, if 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 I'm an LP 
in your fund and you just gave me a hundred million dollars back in cash, I got to put that hundred million dollars somewhere. That's a good, that's a good thing for the system. However, if it's been 12 months and you haven't given me any money back, all of a sudden I've got a hundred million or whatever it is of unrealized locked up. I'm, I have less to put back in. So this sort of extreme liquidity cycle, which has been really, really good for our industry as a whole, venture and entrepreneurship as a whole in the last couple of years. I mean, it came to a stop. It wasn't like a slowdown. It just came to a stop. Public markets closed, huge amounts of, of public value vaporized. Yeah, there's still transactions in the private markets with sales, but it's smaller dollars and much smaller transactions in general, a smaller number of transactions in terms of velocity, that, that's going to have an impact on the capital that people have in 2023 and 2024 to invest. One more thing, which is a, a cliche, I guess. And, you know, cliches are interesting because they're, I, I like to separate them into two categories. One is the cliche has some truth in it. Like there's something really good in, in the cliche. You get tired of hearing it over and over again, but there's some goodness in it. And then the other is cliches are just things that people are amplifying ad nauseum because somebody else said it. The second category of cliches, there's a lot of them in the venture industry and a lot of an, an, an entrepreneurship. And I, I warn everybody to just be, anytime you hear a cliche, think of it as data and try to deconstruct the data for what's useful to you. The cliche that I find interesting and useful in this moment, and it's also my lived experience, is that many of the very successful companies that we've been investors in, our first investment in those companies happened and those companies were formed in periods of really of real economic distress or economic downturn. You know, companies that got started in 2000 or 2001, maybe at the tail end of the goodness or the beginning of the badness, companies that got started between 2007 and 2010. Some of them have been the most successful companies that we've we that I that, that I and we've been investors in and personally, I started my first company in Massachusetts in 1987. And for anybody that's old or studies history, 1987 was, you know, in the fall was when the stock market crashed 25% and, and a big recession ensued. And in Massachusetts, 1987 marked the end of this phenomenon called the Massachusetts miracle. And if you don't know about the Massachusetts miracle, I'm sure Wikipedia has lots of information on it. But, you know, it, uh, Massachusetts had had this incredible miracle, economic miracle that Michael Dukakis, the governor, had presided over that all of a sudden completely collapsed in 1988 and 1999. And like my first company was just getting started during that period of time. It didn't, I mean, did it affect my company? Sure. Was it the thing that I was focused on as an entrepreneur trying to build a company? Not really. It was pretty exogenous to what I needed to do, which was build a product people cared about <laughs> and get customers. And it was harder to get customers then than it was in 1991 or 1992, you know, when that economy started to improve again. But, you know, that that's part of the joy of being an entrepreneur is, you know, you focus on those moments in time. So, so to apply your, your analysis of, of cliches, is the reason that we see so many good companies born in such bad times that it kind of, I don't know, is it a clarifying thing for entrepreneurs that they, they can really focus on, on what matters? Yeah, I think, I think that's probably some of it. Um, You know, resilience gets built when things are hard, not when things are easy. And so I think the entrepreneurs who start companies when it's more challenging to raise money, when it's more challenging to find customers, uh, tend to have more resilience. I'd say that's sort of halfway because I don't think that that's a determinant of resilience. It's just a, a thing that feeds into it. By the way, I think some of it is just time, right? Most great companies don't get built in 24 months. 
Most great companies get built over a decade or 15 years or longer. Every now and then something gets built that's really amazing over a short period of time. But, you know, it takes a, it takes a while. And so you tend to be durable across cycles. And one of the challenges with the cycle we've been in is that we've been in a very strong positive cycle for many years. Now we've had, you know, there've been a couple of bumps, like you know, I think it was 2013 or 14 when uh, B2B SaaS uh, multiples got cut in half, you know, for a couple of quarters, uh, but then they started kind of climbing back up. And then at some point they became absurd, right? So there, there've been moments in time where, you know, for six months in certain sub-segments of, uh, of the tech industry, you saw different things change. You know, you'd have a, there's a moment in time where everybody was investing in a mobile video thing. And then all of a sudden, none of those companies were successful. And that sort of went away as a category. You'd have a hype cycle, you know, like the beginning of VRAR, where you'd have a couple of billion dollars dumped into VRAR stuff that almost none of it worked. Those things happen, but that's just part of the, the ecosystem of entrepreneurship and venture capital and high growth tech companies. I think that's different than, you know, I'm building a company in a situation that's really hard. And so I'm being really thoughtful about how I allocate money. I'm being really thoughtful about the team that I build. I'm being really thoughtful about how I engage and treat my customers. I'm prioritizing a set of things that are important versus getting wrapped up in a bunch of things that maybe seem exciting or seem important, but have no correlation with reality. And maybe the last is it's a sh it shifts back to people who are much more mission-driven than mercenary. Uh, I was talking to somebody earlier today about a company that, you know, is a, a sizable company that's got plenty of stress. And all of the people at that company are mission-driven. They want to be at that company. There's nobody at that company that's, that's currently there working that's uh, saying, I'm working here because I want to make a buck. If they're successful, they'll all make a buck. If they're not successful, well, they cared a lot about the mission, the people they worked with, the thing the company was trying to do, and they were committed to it. And so it didn't become that the, the priority or the driver was, I'm taking this role because I think I can make the most money at this role. It's not saying that you shouldn't care about making money. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. It's that the priority in the entrepreneurial cycle, it's so challenging. There are plenty easier ways to make money. It has to be mission-driven. And in more difficult environments, I think that tends to shine through. Excellent, Brad. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Welcome to our segment of the program that we're calling Game Changers, where we'll explore how the best revenue leaders have transformed their company's growth trajectory. I'm your host, Karen Singh, partner and leader of the Revenue Excellence Function at Sapphire Ventures. Joining me today is Marcus Holm, CRO at Forder, a Cloud 100 company in the fraud protection and prevention space. Marcus, great to have you joining us. Likewise, Karen. Thanks for having me as part of your debut podcast. It's a distinct pleasure to be with you. Let's jump right into it, Marcus. We've interacted in past lives. We worked together in the past. And one of the things that I loved about you is you can always just smell and sense when somebody has revenue in their DNA. What was your aha moment? It's sort of in the DNA, Kieran. I was shaped by my environment in childhood where I was part of a large family of 11 kids. My father was a professional sales trainer, part of Max Sachs International doing track selling. So it was a seven-step process on how you find 
find a prospect, build rapport, qualify and close a deal. And so ironically, in middle and high school, I tag along to these seminars and learn about uh, sales process end to end. And my dad had a strong influence over me in terms of meritocracy and understanding human psychology. And through high school was selling electronics at Super Target, trying to convince people to buy Playstations and cameras and upsell best I could. And then following my uh, high school sales career, I went door to door in Eastern Europe. And so going through university, I just sort of recognized, you know what, I have a real knack for this. I enjoy the human psychology of problem solving and solutions. And so that's kind of what put me on this trajectory to stay in sales. That is amazing. I knew there was something unique about you. Now I know it's you were value selling, following a structured sales process in your teenage years. So my goodness, it is absolutely a part of your DNA. What a journey. Let's get into the meat of it. And I have a feeling I know what your game changer is going to be. If you had to boil it down to that one thing, that one initiative, that one best practice that changed the game for you, what would that be? I think the consistent theme throughout my sales career has been focusing on value realization. So it didn't matter if it was B2C sales in residential neighborhoods where the benefits were different for maybe a child versus an adult, a man versus a woman, an elderly. They all had different things that appealed to them. So doing proper discovery to then figure out the benefits for their situation was critical to landing a sale. So I think when I finished the university and transitioned to business-to-business large enterprise sales, I quickly came to realize that the human psychology is consistent. Whether it's a CFO or CDO wanting to buy something, that's the same person who I was selling to prior on their couch as they want a TV service. And so you need to make sure that you understand who are the key stakeholders that are involved in the decision-making process, because sometimes it might just be a husband and wife, because changing TV service is easy. However, if I want to engage with a Fortune 500 retailer, I'm going to have to focus on a consensus sale where there's a lot of stakeholders with influence into the decision, and then figure out how to quantify the impact and the perceived ROI of my solution to the individual areas So that as they go through and you sort of look at this popularity contest or the bandwagon effect of who are they mostly all going to nod at, and it comes down to a vote more or less in these large enterprises, that you come out standing differentiated. Because most competitors and or salespeople tend to get single-threaded, but to do value realization effectively, you have to be very multi-threaded and uh, ensure you have a comprehensive readout of what matters most to the whole organization. Because if you can solve multiple things simultaneously... You can demand a higher ticket price, you can have a faster sales cycle, and you can have a higher conversion rate. Value realization is not a new concept. I mean, heck, you were doing it in high school, right? So it's been around for a while. How have you translated what is a very, I think, very relevant concept to your teams? What have you done to kind of disseminate that knowledge to everybody else? Because that's, that's right, the trick of the trade. I'm curious, what best practices have you used on the same? Hire a few rock stars, and they can sort of will their way to victory. They instinctively know what to do. They're creatures of habit, and they can just play off of that to find and close deals. I think as you scale to a later stage pre-IPO company like Forder, you come to recognize the importance of standardization because it's sort of the lowest common denominator of how can I simplify the message and the sales place to a place where now I can have it replicated across tens or hundreds of sales reps invest heavily into enablement, both in the the plays, so the content of who are the target personas, what are the sales plays we want to run at those different personas, what is the process from sales stage one to seven, what's the qualification framework that we want to standardize on, really trying to take the learnings of your rockstar reps 
package them up in a repeatable way and make them available for us as a security company. There's a similar opportunity to decide whether you want to sell on fear of loss or desire for gain. If you sell based, if you sell based on fear of loss, you're typically going to be focused exclusively on a security persona or like a fraud prevention persona in our case when you're selling to a lot of retailers. However, if you also orient yourself towards what's there to gain, you get access to and relevance with the chief digital officer, chief financial officer, because you can focus more on revenue maximization, improve customer experience, how do you increase conversion rates and let as many shoppers as possible shop on your website. And so I think it's important that you flesh out the different value drivers of make them more money, save them money or keep them out of jail. And I think as a security company, if you can do all of those, it gets you access to increasing or an additional number of buying centers. I can also get you a much more compelling ROI story because it's not just a bottom line savings play, but it's a top line growth story as well. Makes a ton of sense. You know what I love about your statement too is it's clearly a company wide initiative, right? This is not just a salespeople sitting in the corner trying to go figure it out by themselves. Although I think they are the tip of the spear, right? So you're starting with your best and brightest and learning from them, but then galvanizing the entire company together to change the messaging, change the perspective, all that. And then using that to drive, right? How do you, like you said, canonize this across the organization? I'm curious, did you see a change in your KPIs, right? In retention or, 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 I mean, give me a sense, like, have you seen a change? And I'm also curious, maybe a two-part question. How long do you think it takes before something like this actually really fits in the DNA of the organization? So you will see that change. What do, what do you think that looks like? So short answer is yes, we have seen improvements across our key KPIs. So as I look at the sales team, we're tracking things like ramp time to get on the board of the first deal, conversion rates, what X pipeline do they need for coverage to ensure that they can hit their quota? Because pretty common in our industries, you know, I have three to five X. So if you can be closer to three X, that's great because that means you have a higher win rate. You don't have to have as much top line coverage. Also average deal size. And so as we look at our key metrics there, plus the critical rep productivity metric of you ideally want to get at least half your sales team achieving their regular quotas to limit attrition and turnover. And then frankly, also to control your costs because turnover is a super expensive proposition as you ramp new people. And so I think the investments we've made have paid off along those key metrics. Are we to where we want to be ultimately? Not yet. I mean, we're still working tweaks out, which is kind of to your second question, I think you know the answer. You're just kind of leading question that it's a multi-year journey. I mean, I think it is a company transformation in the early days of focusing on value realization because you're interviewing all the stakeholders across the company. The founders play a critical role in understanding what was the heritage of the solution? Why are we doing it? How do we do it better than the alternatives? You're interviewing the support team to understand what our customers challenged with the product team to understand like what are we building for and what's our direction and our vision for the future. And, and so when you're doing a command of the message type framework that you and I have gone through together, you look at some of these industry standard frameworks of really trying to hone in on the value drivers and the how we do it and the how we do it better and answer the three whys, all these things. It is a, absolutely a cross-company collaboration. And I think there's enough demonstrated evidence at this point based on the success of these IPOs, whether you're looking at the uh, the snowflakes of the world, the octaves of the world, the crowd strikes of the world, they've all followed a similar recipe, I think, of success. And so we're, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel, but we're trying our hardest to remain rigorous and adherent to those best practices. You brought up a couple of top points, and I want you to just speak a little bit more to this. So 
it's a multi-year journey. I think we all understand that. I think conceptually there is a, and, and agree with it. And conceptually there's absolutely a need for something like this. And you see the best and brightest companies, but you'll also find that there's a lot of, especially early stage founders that may not be ready or willing or interested just yet in that transition to value selling because they're beholden to the quarter, they're beholden to the current pipeline. And this transition takes a little bit of pain and suffering as well. So Give some counsel to our audience. Assume that there's uh, revenue leaders listening in and saying, hey, I want to go down this journey. How did you pitch this to your leadership in Forder and in past lives? What would you suggest they do as part of their pitch as well to cement this concept in their leadership's mind and get buy-in? Admittedly, I think this is the most important sale a revenue leader will make is the internal sale. I think there is a propensity for founders and early stage companies to underinvest and go to market thinking that, hey, if my product is super legit, it'll sell itself or the phone will just ring because this stuff is so amazing. And we'll just hire some rainmaker, natural all-star salespeople and they can will their way to victory. It's a dangerous path to go down. I think in the early days, like Series A, Series B, and, and I've had the pleasure of being part of some of those too. It's really about A-B testing. I would acknowledge like, look, you can't really define super repeatable rigorous process when you don't even yet know how you're going to position yourself in the market. The early days are defined by pressure testing your message with your intended personas to see how it lands. And you sort of take your learnings from your losses and ideally get better to a place where you can pivot and drive those rates up. Here at Forder, somewhere to other places I've been, one of my initial priorities was in making the request to invest in sales process, sales qualification frameworks, different tools. Because as you know, given all your operational experience, the tool chain can be quite expensive as well as you add these fixed costs. Anytime you make an ask of the business, you have to be prepared to follow a similar process as you do externally. Quarter over quarter, as you go to board meetings as a revenue leader, you have to be able to show the broader board team Here's the starting place on those key metrics we mentioned earlier in this call. Here's how they're trending quarter over quarter. And as you get positive sort of leading indicators and early success, it begets more investment because people are willing to further invest in places where they see some ROI coming. They don't want to keep throwing bad money after bad results or good money after bad results. And so I think that's where here I've had to focus very heavily on trying to be data-driven, not emotionally driven. I think as long as you continue to educate founders in the journey and you show them it's paying off, they'd be silly not to invest that the deals are getting bigger, you're closing more deals, the growth is accelerating. So that's my biggest counsel is just treat it like a natural sales process and don't cut corners. Otherwise, you won't get the answer you want. Share a little bit. What would you articulate as those leading indicators? What matters most in a high growth business is you want to have high velocity, new logo acquisition. So how many new customers are we bringing on? What's the average sales cycle length within our segmentation model? So for us, we have commercial mid-market, I have enterprise, I have strategic. So let's pay attention to how we can condense those. And one can argue that if I have better enablement and I have better tools and I have just-in-time sort of manufacturing of the right content, the right person at the right time, these will help accelerate the deals as well as make them larger. We pay attention to win rates, just kind of understanding any worthwhile space is going to have a lot of competition. So you got to pay close attention to who you're typically seeing in every deal, who are you beating, who are you losing to periodically, and and recalibrate that way. Marcus, thank you. This is incredibly insightful. I know that our audience is going to get a ton of wisdom. I love to finish these conversations with a lightning round. 
Don't think too hard, just your gut reaction for each. Great leaders pick great companies. How did you pressure test that Porter was a company to go to? So for me specifically, I look at who are the investors? Are these tier one venture capital firms? Are these uh, successful board members? I look at how compelling the founder problem fit is. What's their origin story? Why are they trying to solve this problem? How's my chemistry with them as founders? I look at things like the total addressable market. I like disruptive plays where you've got a well-established legacy solution and it's ripe for disruption. And I want to span verticals and market segments, not be overly niche. I look at glass door reviews just to get a sense for, is this a collaborative, enthusiastic, high energy environment? As I look at this particular opportunity forder, it checked all those boxes. What would you share with others that are trying to make the transition to a leadership role from sales? It's one of those inherent desires you need to have to help other people and to extend beyond yourself as far as your impact. During the pandemic and now, I guess, supposed recession we're in, people are going through some hard personal problems and challenges, right? There's a lot of emotional distress. There's a lot of anxiety. As a leader, you got to be prepared to kind of be a little bit of a therapist, show empathy for the adversity that your team is going through. What's the biggest misconception about our discipline? I just think there's commonly a perception of it's all about relationships. Like, no, that's part of it. But you better build a, a leak-proof enough business case that when it gets passed around 15 times, the people who don't know you still rubber stamp it because you can't possibly get access to all the relevant stakeholders. Salespeople and revenue leaders have to be intelligent. They have to be thoughtful. They have to be analytical. They have to be prepared. Uh, you can't just ad hoc wing it all the time. And so that's what comes to mind for me. What's your big prediction for the future of revenue? One of the quotes I really like from Carl Eschenbach at Sequoia, who I've gotten to know well over the years, he's sort of a career mentor and represents the trajectory I'm trying to follow myself. He talks a lot about how execution is a differentiator, meaning we talk a lot about patents and IP and whose product is the best. And while that is important, there are countless examples in tech history of an inferior product winning the market because they simply out-executed the competition. And so I think... When I think about revenue, it, leaders need to make sure that they recognize the potential impact execution can have. And that is, I think, demonstrated by all the things we've talked about throughout this podcast. There's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot of things you have to build and operationalize and run with for your teams. And if you fail to do that consistently, you'll, uh, you'll get outflanked, I think. Last one, and we'll make this one a fun one. If you weren't in revenue, what would you be doing? An exotic car salesperson, because I love sports cars. And the thought of sitting at a Ferrari or an Aston Martin dealership and taking people for test drives all day feels pretty utopian to me. Amazing. Count me in on the exotic car sales as well, by the way. So birds of the feather. Well, listen, Marcus, this was amazing. Uh, really grateful to you for, for sharing your wisdom, your counsel on value selling, and just in general, getting a little bit more knowledge about your background. This was a fun conversation. Appreciate you. Yeah, likewise. This is by far my most ambitious media product to date, Karen. So thank you for luring me out of my shell into the public domain. Wish you the best of luck with your future episodes. And it was a pleasure. First to many. I'm Karen Singh, and this has been an excerpt of the Game Changers podcast. To listen to the complete episode, please be sure to follow Sapphire Ventures on LinkedIn and at Sapphire VC on Twitter. To get all the latest trends, best practices, and resources from revenue operations experts for startup growth, subscribe to our RevOps newsletter, info.sapphireventures.com forward slash subscribe.
All opinions expressed by Sapphire and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions or views of Sapphire Ventures, LLC. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes and should not be construed as investment recommendation or otherwise relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Invisible Capital. For show notes and links to relevant reports and articles, visit pitchbook.com slash podcast. I'm Alexander Davis. Until next time. Invisible Capital is a production of PitchBook. Executive produced by Kai Yao. Hosted by Alexander Davis. Additional production and editing support by Jen Germain, Allison Sharoni, Brian Hoyson, Finley King, and Sam Steele. Cover art by Landon Early. Subscribe to Invisible Capital on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, visit pitchbook.com slash podcasts.